Alright guys, so this is SSD, Sustainable Self-Development, a podcast for people who want to get ahead in fitness and in life without driving themselves crazy. So if you want to look up a year from now and think, damn, I came a long way, but you don't want to burn out in the process as you get there, you came to the right place. We'll get into today's episode in just a second, but just want to let you know that we have an awesome community on Facebook in the form of a group which you can join, where we discuss and debate things, drop ideas debate over which person to interview for the next podcast and all that good stuff. So go to Facebook, type in sustainable self-development, or you can just check the show notes here and click the link there and you'll find the sustainable self-development Facebook group and you can join. Also, not sure where you're listening to this right now, but this podcast is available on a variety of platforms, iTunes, SoundCloud, Podbeam, and YouTube. You can find it on all of these platforms if you just type in sustainable self-development because luckily nobody is weird enough to name themselves in such a way except me. So look me up on these places and follow the show by subscribing so that you don't miss future episodes. And with that, let's get into the show. All right, everybody, thank you for tuning in. Today, I am super excited to welcome a guest that I wanted to have on for a long time. I am talking with nutritionist, one of the top educators in the health and fitness space, former natural bodybuilder, and uh, still to this day, a very active public figure in the industry. Just a beast at calling people out in a polite and respectful <laughs> way, and the owner and creator of an online university, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, and also, at least at some point, uh, has been referred to as the most well-known uh, nutritionist in Britain. Uh, we will dig into that, uh, whether that's still uh, uh, recent. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking to Martin Nutrition McDonald. So, Martin, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Hi, Bo. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. Um, so, yeah, first, first of all, let's start with that. So, are you still currently the most well-known British uh, nutritionist? Goodness. Um, it has been said, yeah, I don't know how to quantify that. I suppose um, Britain, UK is a relatively small island, so it's, it's not a big title. But, yeah, my... My name is certainly growing. Uh, I think I've been around for, I think pe some people have only heard about me in the last maybe three years and like, oh yeah, you've really, you've really, you're an overnight success. Yeah. Some people are saying, I was like, oh man, I've been doing this for like 13 years or something. Um, but yeah, it, it's nice that kind of, I suppose, through social media, through, you know, launching uh, Mac Nutrition Uni, it's people are talking about me and my business online a lot more. And and even through the, you know, appearing on podcasts like these, people getting to know my work and, and those kind of things. It's just, yeah, it, things have grown and it's it's really nice for me for that, that, that that's happening. Yeah. And, uh, you know, certainly, you know, the whole overnight success thing, we don't have to dig into that. Like people just see the top tip of the iceberg. But, mm. um, you know, listening to, to podcasts with you and seeing some of your uh, appearances, it, you strike me definitely as a, as a confident guy, but at the same time, uh, I can tell that you're a, you're a pretty humble person and you're down to earth. Mm. You don't like to brag. So maybe with this uh, first uh, question of mine, I can uh, push you out of your comfort zone just a little bit. <laughs> so, um, you know, looking at your success and the things that have uh, gone well for you over the last, you know, decade or so, what would you say are the couple of big factors? And, and perhaps a more uh, concrete question here would be, what um, quality of yours is it that think uh, kind of separates you from the crowd or makes you really top class in your field? Mm, wow, 
Um, goodness. So I've got to agree that I'm top class. Okay. Um, I suppose more than anything else, what what maybe differentiates me or, well, there's two parts to it. One, what differentiates me and what's allowed me to be, you know, quote unquote successful. The success side has come from, you know, being committed to a cause, I suppose, for a long, long period of time. You know, the overnight success thing is, okay, pe- things have gone massive, blown up. And, and I think a lot of people see it as monetary success, whereas prior to that, I was respected by people who I wanted be to be respected by. Now it's just a much broader reach. Those big time people with big followings who respected me in private and respected my knowledge and my work had then started talking about me or or other people have started talking about me. And then these big names that they maybe already knew were like, yeah, yeah, Martin's great. And it's like, oh, wow, you know, these big names respect him. He must be good. So the commitment to the cause of evidence-based nutrition, you know, I I actually said this on my Instagram story yesterday that for, for a decade or more, I've been calling out pseudoscience, bad practice, you know, the rubbish that exists within the health and fitness industry. But at the beginning of my career, I got a lot of fight back. I got insults. Oh, who are you to call that out? You know, don't try and bring other people down to build yourself up you know which does hurt someone like me I, I'm a I try to please everyone which isn't always a good thing but at the same time there's a there's a cost I think you know I'm going to hurt someone's feelings if I call them out but I believe there's a greater good of the fact that their misinformation is hurting other people so but fast forward 10 years if I call people out now everyone's like yeah you're a hero it's um yeah do it that everyone's behind you and no no one says to me now oh you're trying to push others down but i'm just doing exactly the same but i've just got a bigger name myself so realistically now you could see me as more of a bully like i think the definition of bullying is um using a greater position of influence to harm someone else but um back then i had no influence but now i do but realistically i believe you know these things that are there are people out there knowingly ripping people off there are people out there who are maybe unknowingly giving out misinformation. And I don't go out and be nasty to people. I try and help them to understand where they're going wrong and why, you know, telling people all of these silly things that we hear in the fitness industry are wrong and they are, say, disempowering messages and they maybe leave their clients in a worse place. But, um, yeah, the commitment to that over a long period of time, I have had a relatively, uh, what's the word, kind of blinkered view, like my life has been about nutrition, my hobby, my work, my, you know, everything, my family have been brought into it. So, it, you know, it, it's been a long period of time that's led me to just this this goal of I want to, to make it sound a bit grand, change the world. I want to leave a lasting legacy of people basing things on science. Like when I started in this industry, people were, you got into as a, as a personal trainer, a coach, a nutritionist, and you did whatever the hell you wanted. Like this is what everyone, even now, people join the industry, yeah. Oh, I've heard the best thing is low carb. I've heard the best thing is paleo. And they think that it's okay to just go, yep, I'm gonna put all my clients on that because that's the latest thing. Rather than starting from a point of, what is the body of evidence say? What is the most efficient and effective you know, through time and money, way to get a client to improve their health, to improve their life, to get results. Um, yeah. So yeah, that in part. And then I think the other thing that's what's differentiated me is I am willing to make other people feel a little bit uncomfortable. Mm. So, but also at the detriment to myself. So I have quite famously been in, in some like 
lawsuits and and these different kind of things because I've called bad practice out and it's been you know it has really really affected my personal health my mental health my you know my life being in these situations but I believe for the greater good so you know I am willing to go out and call people out and everyone's like oh you're a bit of a troll oh, I can't believe you said that and so I suppose yeah that's where I'm differentiated lots of people just oh you need to be positive people like positivity whereas I'm slightly different in that I will call stuff out whether people like it or not and um yeah you know that's that's benefited me in some ways I have a really really strong loyal following but maybe I don't have the the size of following that I could have if I was a bit more happy go lucky all the time mm mm-hmm. Yeah, and and speaking speaking of the size of your following, um, I heard someone I actually forgot who it was say that once you reach a certain level of success, you need to um, differentiate between the things that you do for free and the things that you do for money. And uh, I'm I'm assuming that for someone like you, uh, educating and and helping people to achieve their goals is what you would do for free. Luckily, you don't have to. You're making a, <laughs> a good living from it. But uh, did you find that over time you had to do more and more things uh, that you you just have to do and um, and that are sort of the things that you don't enjoy doing but have to have to get done? I'm, I'm asking this because the other day I've I've heard you mention somewhere that over time you had to get good at online marketing and and these sorts of things. Yeah, interesting. Um, one thing about me is. <clears throat> Whilst I love nutrition, I actually really love one numbers and two business. So, you know, as soon as I, you know, I got my degree, I got my masters, I got my postgraduate, and I went self-employed instantly. I did, I had some jobs that were like lecturing at the university, but they were just kind of sidelines for my for my bigger goal. And uh, so, yes. It, it, I love business, but I don't like marketing. And the people that I don't like in the industry care more about say marketing than they do about science or doing right by other people so I actually at the beginning of my career I had a bit of a thing against making money mm. and that was a really bad way to go about things I almost felt bad charging for my advice or or productizing anything I wanted everything 100% bespoke which then cost me loads of time but I didn't want to charge people too much so it just wasn't viable right. um so yeah I I think people do need to learn about marketing. They do need to learn to do those things. With regards to doing stuff for free, funnily, I, I've always done loads for free. I, I have a bit of a saying that I teach on any of my mentorships is say no to nothing. And so far, I'm still pretty much maintaining that. I mean, I get asked probably weekly to go on the radio. Um, and I, I've started turning that down now because... I, there's no point I'm reaching the same people they're kind of not necessarily people who are even listening but I'm still you know doing free Facebook lives and kind of people say to me oh yeah but you are marketing when you do a Facebook live and I you don't actually I sort of say to them if I was about money or if I was about marketing I would just sit down I would spend that time either working with a client who wants to pay me silly money mm. or just doing Facebook ads but I like the element of our business that has been true for the last decade of we want to, you know, our one-on-one -on -one consultancy for nutrition is very, very expensive. But being able to give back, write free articles, give back free Q&As for people who don't have enough money to get decent advice, even with the, like the NHS in the UK, they're not getting good nutrition advice. So, yeah, I still, I probably now, and like you said it before we went online, I've got a team of staff now, which is fantastic because I can do the stuff I enjoy. 
I can do stuff for free. I can do podcasts like this, which yes, does benefit the business, but my staff are through there working, organizing this podcast for me, um, you know, doing doing the nuts and bolts of things. So, you know, for me, it's a case of I want to do a world tour or a UK tour and a world tour on nutrition. And I don't really need to make any money from that. Um, so it's really nice that I'll get A, get to travel, B, get to meet people, C, give people some good information and um, my business will still run and um, I'll be able to reach more people and do kind of what's my personal goal to, to yeah, I suppose, that grand thing of change the world. Right. And um, when speaking of changing the world or at least changing uh, lives of, of individuals, uh, I, I found it really, uh, I had to laugh and or just kind of smile when I heard you mention <laughs> that um, it's kind of a funny disconnect between uh, belonging to this science uh, savvy crowd that you're belonging to, but at the same time, it poses this kind of funny pressure when you walk into a conference room and you have to give a presentation to these evidence-based practitioners and it's really hard to say something new to them. And at mm. the same time, when you talk to gem pop people, saying something like, you know, you don't have to eat breakfast is going to blow everybody's yeah. minds. Yeah. So, so with that, um, these days, which brings you more pleasure, talking to the more gem pop crowd or the more elite performers, you know, bodybuilders, that, that sort of crowd? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, Wow. I don't, yeah, I don't, I think I love both of it still. I, I mean, I love public speaking and actually on my world tour, I'm going to call it, um, I want to have, this is, I mean, this is exclusive information, Abel. This is like oh, behind wow. the scenes stuff. Yeah. Basically, we had the discussion last week that what I'm probably going to do is, you know, say Saturdays through the year, different countries, different cities, and put on six hours worth of education content. And the first, say, two will be a topic that is specific to Gen Pop, is pitched at Gen Pop, and but it but is like the I don't want to say the basics of nutrition, but it's nutrition 101. It's kind of myth busting, uh, body composition stuff, the stuff that is gonna hit a lot of those buttons. So that will be the one where PTs, trainers, nutritionists, everyone who follows me, they can come and listen to, but they can also bring their clients. But I will also be marketing at people in the general public to come and get this two hours of information. Mm. But then the next four hours will then be the higher level stuff, two hours on you know, a, an advanced topic of programming or something and another two hours on something else. So yeah, <sighs> from that perspective it's a case of i don't want to get rid of either because i absolutely love changing the lives of individuals who aren't in the industry but i suppose in a way i've now i've seen my career at a point where i can help trainers and nutritionists be more effective in what they do so in essence their client results become a little bit to do with me so rather than me being able to work with 100 people i can help 100 trainers who each have 100 clients and it's just exponential so yeah, I love I love both of it. I love still telling people and seeing their faces when you go, do you know what? You don't have to eat breakfast or yeah. something as silly as that versus telling, you know, an evidence-based practitioner, do you know what? You can diet someone aggressively and you're not a bro. You're not a you're not going to harm someone if you do it like this or, you know, telling someone who's kind of fairly advanced, do you know what? Muscle loss doesn't need to be a major consideration for you if you do things right like this like I love it all I love nutrition 
and I love speaking to people. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, and that sounds very cool. What you just mentioned that's coming up. Uh, so thank you for giving that uh, behind the scenes information here. <laughs> it's all right. Um, and, and with that, thank you for giving me the transition there, uh, because I definitely, you know, just um, a week ago, I was talking to Lyle McDonald on my podcast about mm. some of the ins and outs and um, kind of some of the techniques behind um, aggressive dieting and discussing his work on rapid fat loss. And okay. um, but we haven't found or we haven't talked specifically about the the why of aggressive dieting. We only talked about the how. And um, you were one of the people, uh, one of the first people from in the evidence-based crowd from whom I heard this idea of aggressive dieting being actually pitched. <coughs> so, um, you know, if you had to kind of give a general pitch for aggressive dieting, um, what, what would that be in, in a general sense? Sure, yeah. So this is one of those things, like you said, I find it hard to wow the evidence-based crowd because there's, there's myself and other evidence-based guys putting out content on the internet and everyone's just lapping it up, reading it, listening to all the podcasts. Yeah. So it's like, what are they doing? I need to consider how can I still help them get better? And this is where this came from was I saw too many evidence-based guys being too moderate. It was this idea that, oh, if you put someone in a big calorie deficit, they're going to adapt to it super quick and not lose weight. And which is not evidence-based. It's not based on the science. What it's based on is their idea of the bros in the industry, people who don't coach people, they put people on stupid diets, really, really restrictive diets, even just not even necessarily calorie restriction, but overly restricting foods that are unnecessary to restrict. You know, you won't lose weight if you eat gluten. You won't lose weight if you eat dairy, all these silly things that exist. Mm -hmm. But the evidence-based crowd, they want to help people. They don't want to, you know, metabolically damage them, which we know doesn't really exist. Yeah. But they just want to be nice. They want to be good people. So I basically said this phrase, which caused a lot of controversy, which was, I think this is right, diet people on as few calories as they can realistically maintain to take them to their goal. I think that's you know almost verbatim anyway. And the reason for this is that some people do great. Like the science, even on general population individuals, is that very often more aggressive strategies get better results long-term. So people are like, oh, if you crash diet, you'll regain all of the weight and more. And everyone's, you know, nodding. Yeah, that's evidence-based. That sounds correct. That's common sense. And then you go, okay, find a study that shows that. They're not there. Then you look at the studies, okay, fast versus slow rate weight loss, um, 0.5% versus 1%, all of these different studies that have been done. And then it's even, you get some crazy findings in the research, the more aggressive diet, the greater the calorie deficit. And it's like the fast rate weight loss group had lower hunger. And it's like, what? How is that possible? But this is what the research tells us. And there's, there's various mechanisms that we could use to explain those findings. But realistically, what you're asking me is the why. Why would we do it? Well, because people seem to get better results and they seem to maintain more of their weight loss or they seem to maintain a greater level of weight loss after the longer period. So if you get a group losing at a slow rate and you get a group losing at a fast rate, even if the both groups regain some of their weight, there's a, there's a really interesting study which basically said the fast rate of weight loss group were able, a greater percentage of that group maintained a clinically significant weight loss after 12 months. And the reason for that is, is because they lost more weight. So even though every single person in that study regained some weight, the ones who had just lost more to begin with were, were maintaining more of that weight loss after a year. So 
I just wanted to bring this back. I don't want to promote it as the best thing. And I reckon some people listening right now will have gone, oh, he's promoting this as the best and only way to do it. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is don't discount it as a possible method for a new client or yourself. So when I said this, I don't know when it was, a couple of years ago, suddenly I see trainers and PTs and, and just general population or, or they're, they, they're tagging me in their Instagram and their Facebook mess, um, posts. Oh my goodness, I've been doing your eaters. And you know, I started making a joke out of it. I started calling it the eat as few calories as you can diet trademark. Um, mm. People are like, oh, I've been doing the Martin McDonald eat as few calories as you can diet and I'm getting shredded. And it's like, well, of course you are. You're but then people say, oh, we're going to lose muscle mass. And that's the second part of it, if you don't mind me going on to that as well, is people are obsessed with the fact or with the idea that they're going to lose muscle if they diet hard. And, you know, to, I'm going to pick out the popular one, the Longland study, mm. which showed 40% calorie deficit. I believe in that study, it was a 1,200 calorie deficit that was the average between the subjects so a 40% deficit and on 1.2 grams per kilogram protein which is you know run for the hill stuff if you're a fitness industry person like oh my goodness you're gonna lose all your muscle if you eat that much protein they maintained muscle mass and the high group on 2.4 grams per kilogram increased muscle mass now there's certain nuances with that study that I'm not going to bother going into it's just a proof of concept I'm not telling anyone to eat 1.2 but I'm telling people, eat adequate protein, maintain a decent quality of resistance training, and then do a deficit that you can maintain. If you're someone who's going to restrict calories and start binging on, you're, you're psychologically not in the right place, don't do it. It's not magic. But, you know, I've just about five or six days ago, no, seven now actually, started doing this diet for, you know, four weeks. I will only have to diet for four weeks, whereas me in the olden days because I again I've made mistakes so many stupid mistakes mm -hmm. um eating seven meals a day to boost my metabolism type mistakes yeah. and I am now eating 12 to 1400 calories a day and actually I'm I'm generally quite good at eating low calorie but I, I've been starving but I get on the scales and I've been losing almost almost a pound a day in the last seven days yeah. and that's hugely motivating i know that's not all body fat but it's hugely motivating what i'm doing is working i'm going to be significantly leaner in four weeks and in four weeks i can jump my calories all the way back to maintenance and i'll be three times more shredded than the olden days martin who would have been dieting on a little deficit um, and also i was really hungry to begin with but now my appetite is subsiding massively and you know today what time are we on half past three in the afternoon, I've eaten 200 calories today and I feel great. And people say, oh, doesn't it affect your energy levels? Doesn't it impact your mental, your cognition? It's like, hopefully people can see my brain's working not too bad anyway. Um, so yeah, this is the thing. I'm just trying to open people's mind a little bit to what are, what are the reasons not to do it? Muscle loss. Well, that's unlikely if you've got some body fat. And, and this is another thing, actually. If you're a bodybuilding competitor, if you are very lean already, and, and I mean really lean like sub 10% on a DEXA not 10% you know I'm just going to show my leanest body part in the mirror on Facebook you know I, mean, I make this joke people in Lyle's Facebook group they'll post up like a picture of their back if their back's their leanest body part or a picture of their abs if their abs are really lean or their quads if that's their and go 
guys, um, just wondering if you give me what what percent body fat do you think I am? It's like I can see fifteen percent of your body. How am I going to judge your body fat percentage? Okay. Um, but yeah, on a Dexa, ten percent is is really really lean, and if you're at that level of leanness, muscle loss starts to become an issue, and this is where tapering your deficit, reducing your deficit, and I don't know if you've heard me talk about this before, and I think Greg Knuckles has written an article on this, but a really, really, really conservative deficit is divide your percentage body fat by 20, and that is the percentage of your body weight that you can lose per week. So you calculate the approximate deficit required to do that, and that will minimize muscle loss to the maximal level that your say genetics will entail um i actually think you can push that figure of 20 um down to 15 which actually means up in the rate of weight loss so divide your percent body fat by 15 and at that level so if you're 30 percent body fat you can lose two percent of your body weight a week which you know if you're a i'm going to make the math easy for myself 100 kilos you know that's like um four kilos yeah. i was going to convert it to pounds to make it sound better but um it's a it's a seriously uh whatever that is that 4.4 4.4 pounds a week of body fat you can lose yeah. and not lose any muscle so yeah this this is this is the why it, it it can be effective there's very little reasons not to do it if you can't stick to it do not do it if you can do do it within the constructs that i've just said and you'll get shredded quicker and go back to maintenance sooner yeah no that was beautiful <laughs> no that was great and uh you sparked a couple of uh thoughts in my head one of which is uh you know, I, I've done uh, really aggressive fat loss uh, phases in the past. And what you just mentioned about being a pound lighter, that, that's a very nice, um, almost kind of a positive reinforcement daily. Like uh, mm, you, you might be suffering exactly. a little bit more day to day, but the next day you can literally look leaner. And that's people are willing to <laughs> suffer, push a little bit for, you know, mm. visible results. And that's not the case with more uh, moderate deficits. So that that's a great one. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and okay. just on that front, just to say, is like, if people are listening to this who have their own clients, it, you don't have to pick one method. You can you could literally put in a week of this. <clears throat> so <clears throat> you've got someone on a moderate deficit. You've and and when th when things are more moderate, or you're doing diet breaks, because the other thing I like about this is if you diet someone aggressively, you can go back to maintenance for a week, two weeks, however long, and teach someone what it's like to live at maintenance whilst their motivation is super high. Like if someone pays you money, they're going to work with you for 12 weeks. That whole 12 weeks are in a deficit. You do not once teach them really about weight maintenance and lifelong habits because the only habits that you're instilling are, are specific to weight loss. So even though eat more veg, you've probably taught them that, mm. but you've taught them that in the constructs of losing weight, not... Okay, you're not going to be hungry. You're going to eat at maintenance, but you're still going to eat protein at this meal and you're still going to eat veg at this meal and you're still going to prepare like this and et cetera. And these are portions. So if you diet someone hard, twice as hard, twice twice as much of the time, they can be at maintenance and still get the same rate of progress. So you don't have to hammer someone all the time. But like you say, it's super motivating, right? Next week, we're going to go really aggressive. You're going to feel leaner every day. The scale's going to go down. You're going to be more hungry but it's only going to last a week or two weeks or however long. Then we're going to go back to maintenance or a small deficit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So 
it doesn't have to be the only tool in your box. Even with a client, even if they can handle aggressive, you can do more maintenance stuff um, as well. Yeah, and um, I think what you just mentioned is, is such a critical point, and that's one of my pet peeves is that um, the, the practicing of maintenance, because that was going to be um, one of my, my questions to you is, I've heard you mention a, a couple of times that you have to, we have to distinguish between a temporary period in which we are pushing towards a goal and how mm. we are going to live long term. And, yeah. and that's 100% right. But it, it's, it has to come with a caveat that um, when you push aggressively for a specific, uh, specific goal, then we also need uh, dedicated periods in which we are actually learning long term, sustainable uh, lifestyle strategies. And then from that vein, would you say that potentially pushing twice as hard maybe for a week and then taking a, a period of maintenance is superior to pushing half as hard for two weeks and no maintenance whatsoever, even though math-wise in the long term, the two might come out, come out at the same end result? Mm, that's such an interesting question, partly because of the Matador study that came out recently. Yeah. And it's quite exciting for anyone who isn't aware. The Matador study essentially did what Abel said there about they did two weeks of deficit, two weeks of maintenance versus just a consistent deficit. And for whatever reason, you know, the the speculation is potentially a reduction in the adaptive processes that occur with dieting. The Whilst we would expect them to come out in the same place, the cyclical or undulating um, energy availability or deficit, etc., came came off better. So it's a really interesting one. Based on that study, we could say, yes, yeah, cyclical methods are better. You need to, you know, you could do one and one, you could do two and two, whatever you do. Um, there might be optimization of that study protocol. It might You might be able to go, right, two to three weeks hard, one week maintenance. And because of maintenance, and um, I'm going to be speaking this year on... I'm going to create a, a talk, uh, a presentation that, I don't know, I might give out on one of my email lists. And the title is going to be something like aggressive refeeding strategies to overcome fat loss, fat loss plateaus. Mm -hmm. And it will deal with some of the data and the, the stuff that's being alluded to in the Matador study of how can we not necessarily just go back to maintenance, but look at aggressive refeeding, aggressive overfeeding within certain constructs to undermine these adaptive processes that go on with dieting. You know, people say, oh, calories don't count because, I mean, this, I don't know if you've seen this ridiculous stuff, but, you know, when you count calories, your body knows that you're starving it, so it lowers your metabolism. Like, oh, my oh, goodness, yeah. as, if you're, as if your body's listening to your words in your head. <laughs> like, these things happen through negative feedback loops and messengers and hormonal signals it's nothing to do with whether you're counting um the calories themselves it's the fact that your body is seeing the flux of energy within the body and it's in a negative thing so it homeostasis comes into play so can we almost i mean i've got this thing i talk about on instagram shock the body but not shocking the body but tricking the body or, or working in a way that we feed it at certain periods where it hasn't got these signals of famine and it's not trying to protect our fat stores and therefore we can get leaner easier more efficiently you know more effectively so yeah that's something i'm going to create but it's it's exactly what you've alluded to there is there a difference potentially yeah we have 
some data that is coming out that's showing that that cyclical method may well be better. So yeah, aggressive versus um, aggressive and light, so cyclical versus just a consistent bog standard same energy deficit. And I mean, competitors, physique competitors have been doing this in a way for a long time. They have their refeed meals or refeed days and you know the amount of calories some people are able to consume on that day it probably means that they've undone about three days worth of deficit so in that instance you could call that cyclical but it's being a bit more specific about it it's it's um, putting it in specific periods and only going you know it's having a a particular macro split that's more beneficial maybe to resetting parts of you know hormonal adaptations parts of metabolism increasing total daily energy expenditure through increases in things like neat um for a more favorable outcome when you go back into your deficit phase yeah yeah that's uh that's very that's very cool and um just just, uh, to backtrack for one second uh Mm. because it reminded me on the you mentioned how the the worries and concerns about muscle loss are usually largely overblown um Mm. and you mentioned this uh, divide your body fat percentage by 15 uh, Mm. as as kind of um an aggressive but reasonable guideline and i'm Mm -hmm. sure like as you know um some people will still try to negotiate these these figures and you know even when we talk about what can you realistically maintain there's always going to be that one crazy person who can eat like nothing for a month um Mm. it's not common but those people are out there and uh, do you think like to what extent is it potentially even worth um meth wise in the long term uh, risking even potentially some muscle loss if it means a faster rate of, of weight loss you know what it's worth for what it's worth uh, last summer i actually over the course of maybe about less than four weeks i would say i went from about 16 percent body fat to a pretty darn shredded i would say very close to single digits but you know mm. definitely not more than 10 percent yeah. maybe i lost some muscle in the process but once i filled out and i added back in calories i looked better than ever so uh, what do you think is the kind of trade-off math uh, looks like here yeah i mean that's a great question and this is something i spoke on danny lennon's podcast and he when he was kind of summarizing me he said once you've dieted aggressively you get back to maintenance quicker you get back to even maybe a small surplus quicker and your training you know hopefully improves and and all of these kind of things and regaining lost muscle or regaining lost lean tissue you know we've got the i don't know if you saw it but that ridiculous keto versus whatever diet and resistance training and they basically carved up the keto group in i think it was the seventh week and they were like oh yeah keto is amazing for muscle mass gains and it's not it's you know they basically did the old school um um, carbo loading protocol of deplete carbs and then super compensate And and on a dexa scan that shows up as increased muscle mass or lean body mass and all it is is carbohydrate and water inside your muscle cells so cell volumization but yeah, when you stop dieting after an aggressive diet like you did, and you said use the word there, filled out, it's like, yeah, you added back in calories, you added back in carbs, and and essentially you gained lean body mass, which we can call muscle mass. It's not myofibular protein necessarily, but also any any lost muscle mass is highly likely because of this um, kind of magical term, muscle memory, mm-hmm. you can regain lost tissue really, really easily. Building new t- tissue naturally is very, very hard. But regaining lost tissue, which was one of the confounders in the Longland study, um, is, is super easy. So I think there is a trade-off of 
just get shredded. Yeah. And if it, I mean, that's if you're not doing it for a bodybuilding slash physique show because you need to peak. And so if you've lost a fair amount of muscle and then you're going to spend a couple of weeks gaining it back. But in my mind, get there in the, in the most efficient way. Don't, don't try and lose muscle, but do it well, do it fast, do it in a way that suits you. And then even... Um, I, I saw some stuff about Alberto Nunes. I don't know if you're aware of him. I yeah, yeah, sure. Assume you are, yeah. From 3DM Gen. Yeah, I mean, he gets shredded, but then ups calories, you know, increases them, increases them in the, in the final weeks. And for me, that's the best way to do these things. It's like increase your calories, fill out muscle glycogen, but also train better, regain a bit of lost muscle potentially, you know, get there earlier and do that. So, you know, for bodybuilding competitors, it's a there is a lot more fine tuning needed. But for me, going on holiday getting in shape for summer all of these different kind of things and lots of reasons different people diet throughout the year get shredded do it as fast as you can realistically maintain and then go back to you can regain everything lost in a matter of weeks rather than the six months or a year it took you to gain a few pounds of muscle um, in the first place so I, I do think you can push the boat out one of the biggest issues and we're talking physiology now is there is probably a maximal rate of presentation, to do my American accent because it sounds better, a maximal rate of presentation of lipids to the bloodstream for then oxidization within the muscle. So even if you put yourself in a massive deficit, there is a limit on that rate. Now we can potentially speed that rate up through things like caffeine, which we know helps with lipolysis. And people take caffeine thinking it's a fat burner and it isn't really. It, it raises your metabolism a little bit. It helps with appetite suppression a little bit. But it does lead to lipolysis. So maybe that helps with the increased rate of presentation of mm. fatty acids to the bloodstream that will help us to make more of our deficit come from fat as opposed to other lean body mass tissues so one thing is is this maximal rate when it's when you go above that maximal rate it will take from lean body mass but that doesn't mean you're losing muscle mass necessarily that literally means you might dip into so i've lost what have i lost i lost 5.9 pounds in seven days mm -hmm. at the start of this diet i know that's not all fat mass but i i pretty much would categorically state i lost almost no muscle mass in that time so what else have i lost well i've lost lean body mass which is carbohydrate and water from the muscle so if in another five to ten days i do a refeed i top those stores back up so that if i do overcook it with my deficit i tap into those if i was completely glycogen depleted we know that amino acid oxidation goes up um in the early sports science studies of endurance athletes we see that in a glycogen depleted state amino acid oxidation or contribution to energy demands goes up we don't really want that so once i get to a fairly glycogen depleted state i need to either taper my deficit to something that can be fueled solely by body fat or i refeed and therefore it gives me this essentially margin for error for a greater deficit but again, I carb up. I know I'm not gaining any body fat. The scales go up loads. I feel great. I'm loving the fact that I'm eating loaves of bread. Mm -hmm. And I then go back into a deficit and the scales start going down again, which is hugely motivating for me as a client, individual, you know, people that we work with. So it's understanding all of these nuances that we can actually end up personalizing someone's nutrition really well um, based on all, all of these little factors. 
Absolutely. And uh, just for the people who I'm sure curious now, uh, what kind of, uh, so you mentioned you're eating like 13, 1400 calories. Like, I don't know if you're doing it on a deliberate tracked sort of way, but if you do like what sort mm -hmm. of um, calculated deficit did you put yourself at? Did you aim for that uh, divided by 15% uh, type mm -hmm. of uh, rate with your weight loss? Yeah, it's, it's funny. Like when we start shining the spotlight on me, you start realizing that I'm a bit of a bro. But um, I... For this for this time, I mean, I only like I said, I only started seven days ago. I it was just a case of oh man, I need to diet, and mm -hmm. um, for various different reasons, and so I'm not tracking at all. I might start tracking in a week or two. I just sort of said to myself, I'm just going to eat as little as possible while whilst essentially tracking protein only, and then allowing myself to go above. So I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly my calories or or any of the splits for that, or even necessarily what deficit i'm in but i might be in a 12 to 1500 calorie deficit maybe right and um, there or thereabouts i'm not an overly active person uh so there's that but I, I will pay attention to my protein so you were talking about lyle's rapid fat loss stuff and i know he bases a lot of his work on say protein sparing modified fasts and i've not actually read he's got his good book on that hasn't he i've not actually read that but I think generally people look at, okay, two grams per kilogram body weight protein and then a little bit of supplementary fats, you know, omega-3s and then some vegetables. For me, I know I can't maintain that. I just don't like it. I I dislike the lack of variety. I dislike the lack of ability to have a little bit of fruit. And um, there's also some interesting research that shows very low fructose from fruit intake versus more moderate fructose from fruit intake body fat loss is greater with a moderate intake now that could literally be an adherence thing or it could be some interesting signaling stuff going on so for me it's a case of i add on 50 percent. you know people talk about okay rapid fat loss protein sparing modified fast 800 calories so i add on 15 percent of that 1200 and see how close i can get to 1200 i often fail but this is the funny thing if i fail and I hit 1400 or 1600 because I that's one of my things is I do want it to be maintainable for the month so I don't screw myself over by going no I must stick to 1200 I I allow myself to go to 1600 which sounds mad but that's another 30% calories extra if I'm aiming for 12 and I go up to 1600 yeah um and it allows me more flexibility in the construct that I have created so yeah, I'm you know anywhere between twelve and sixteen hundred is probably I can't say for sure where I'm at. I just know that I'm eating similar stuff to what I did last time I tracked, maybe six months ago. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's and I really like that actually because that's exactly how I like to do rapid fat loss phases myself <coughs> in an untracked way where I'm trying to eat as little as possible while always staying kind of on the right side of the razor's edge where I don't go insane. So um, I kind yeah. of adjust a lot. Because like, I don't know about you, but when I know, even just I'm aware of the fact that I'm only eating whatever, 1,200 calories, that just messes with my head. I just can't stop thinking about the fact all day that, <laughs> oh my God, I'm only super low calories. Mm. Is that similar to you? or? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I go both ways. And I, I think I've done some mentoring videos on this as I think for, say, people like you and I, there's a, I would agree with what you said there, like maybe going, oh, it's only 1200, that's crazy. But I know there are certain times when I can actually go too low calorie, probably, you know, I'll, 
some days when I was tracking, I would get to 10 p.m. and I was on six, 700 calories. Mm-hmm. And but I had started to get ravenously hungry. Now, in an uncontrolled fashion, i.e. potentially one of our clients, someone we're working with, someone who is not well versed, that would lead to a binge. That would lead to an uncontrolled consumption of calories because they are pre-bed, they can't sleep because they're too tired, and they binge. And they binge on highly palatable foods, high calorie high calorie density and it's uncontrolled whereas if you can take a client because a lot of people do that right a lot of people in the general population go i want to lose weight i'm going to eat less that's it they don't know about protein they know nothing i'm going to eat chicken salad i'm going to eat an egg for breakfast or i'm going to eat four tablespoons of greek yogurt for breakfast i'm going to have one apple at mid-morning i'm going to have a chicken salad at lunch with no sauce no dressing no nothing I'm going to have one more piece of fruit in the afternoon and I'm going to have chicken and broccoli for dinner. That's it. They don't realize that that is an unbelievably low calorie diet and they then freak out and binge. If they had counted calories, so it's a tool in the toolbox, it's allowing this, they could go, and this is what I do is I go, oh my goodness, I've done really well today. I am starving hungry, but I'm only on 700 calories. I can eat five, 600 calories. Like how much rice can you eat for five six hundred calories and a, and a piece of chicken or 30 grams of whey and so i would eat that and just go oh man that that's amazing i can go to sleep now because i was struggling and i knew where to eat up to whereas if you have no numbers no figures nothing to base it on how does someone who's who's not kind of well versed as as you and i potentially are how do they know when to stop you know, they don't know that they can go and get 100 grams of rice, boil that up to make, you know, three, 400 grams of rice, huge food volume, some vegetables, and then some protein. And it's, you know, essentially double the calories for the day, but they're still in a really nice, decent deficit. So I think there's definitely both ways of doing it. There's the, I know exactly like you said, sometimes the numbers can just stress you out. And that's where I am at right now. I don't want to track. I don't want to know numbers. I just want to do and lose weight etc but i know in maybe a week or two it'll get to a point where i've become really good at under eating but then i hit points where i get ravenous and actually knowing the numbers will be helpful for me because you know if you don't measure you can't manage or whatever that funny saying is that people say yeah uh, yeah so there's some insights yeah cool yeah um and and by the way we are kind of coming up at the hour mark i'm just wondering do you have some more minutes to discuss some um, a uh, couple of other questions or i do you- I, i've got as long as you want Oh wow, that's one hell of a one hell of a privilege. <laughs> okay, then I'm just going to abuse your time. Just kidding. Yeah, no. Go for it. <laughs> no, so uh, yeah, I really like what you're saying there, and um, I myself am not tracking my calories uh, whatsoever. I do track protein like yourself, but the big caveat there is that I have years of skills and and building Mm. up a calorie awareness at least which is very Mm. critical for most people and then they can decide whether they want to use this tool in the tool belt but um uh, the the other thing i I wanted to to ask you for sure is uh, you know getting to the fat loss uh end result is one side or one part of the battle that we have to win but the biggest component of course is maintaining that that uh, achieve the results. So maybe we can still go off of your example. So for example, once you will have um, achieved your uh, fat loss result, maybe you will be a little bit, your baseline level of hunger maybe will be somewhat higher than it normally would be because you just Mm -hmm. finished a diet. 
and maybe um, people at this point are a bit more sensitive to food cues. Um, their taste buds mm -hmm. are a little bit, you know, <laughs> more reactive to very tasty yeah. foods. So. How do you generally recommend people to reverse out of a diet? Not reverse in the literal sense, but kind of just renormalizing yeah. eating behavior and returning to maintenance. Yeah, that's a good one. And this is, you know, already touched on with those going into periods of, of maintenance during a, you know, longer term. For me, mine's just a four weeks and then it, I don't need to then maintain and then go again. That'll be me done. So for me, in my instance, it's a case of, well, I try to encourage people that if anyone has done a diet, they know, you know, people start going, oh, my favorite meal of the day is my porridge in the morning with my scoop of chocolate whey protein. <laughs> but no one, no one starts a diet thinking that. Yeah. No one starts a diet going, oh, I've been love waking up to that. I mean, some weird bodybuilder types do, I know for sure. But um, you, you do find joy in more bland food. So I try to encourage people as like, you know, on your diet, you would have loved it if I'd said, you know, your porridge meal, have two of those meals for breakfast, you know, have have another snack that's that big. And it's it's a case of being able to to increase calories. And, and it's that joy. I can't really put it any any other way. People yeah. who've done diets will know what I mean. And it's a case of if we're talking numbers, the whole reverse, you know, you, you mentioned it there, the reverse dieting thing is. I don't understand how people still don't get this, but you have finished a diet, you jump back to maintenance. You you don't reverse back from your deficit to maintenance. So let's say with me, I'm on, I'm going to say 1500 calories. If I'm going to reverse back to, or let's say my maintenance was 3000 when I started, probably there will have been a little bit of adaptation in four weeks that, have, that has occurred. But another thing I tell people is, when you're in a big deficit, you create a pool of, um, it's like an, uh, it's basically I'm talking about glycogen depletion. You have about 2,000-ish yeah. calories, depending on the size of your muscle mass, it just of carbohydrate in your muscle. So if you've ended your diet in that in a somewhat depleted state, you then go back to maintenance. And let's say you miss Q maintenance by 200 calories over or 300 calories over. If you are glycogen depleted, you will be storing 300 of those calories. So you're, we're not cheating thermodynamics. Your body is gaining energy, but it's not necessarily storing body fat. It's when, when we're glycogen depleted and when we're very insulin sensitive or after exercise, for instance, we get what's called a... Um, the translocation of GLUT4 to the um, cell wall. So that basically we get what's called insulin, um, non-insulin dependent glucose disposal. So we don't need to jack up insulin very high. We're really, really easily disposing our carbohydrate, our glucose into our muscle. So you overshoot by 200 calories. You just become 200 calories worth, 50 grams approximately worth more carbohydrate loaded. So even if I was to jump from 1500 straight back to 3000, even if I've, you know, metabolically adapted a little bit, I, I'm okay for the beginning bit of that. I'm because I'm using this pool that I've created by being in a deficit. And what happens again, if I'm in a 200 calorie surplus, that's refeeding that's a diet break i will start to regain some of my 
lost metabolism, let's call it, my TDEE, my total daily energy expenditure, will start to creep back up. Now, it might not ever, because I weigh less, it's never necessarily going to go back to the same level. So I don't want to cheat people by, you know, I've heard people on the internet saying, you can, if you reverse diet properly, you can, you know, maintain on 4,000 calories, whereas before you're maintaining on 3,000, like that kind of stuff's not going to happen. But unless you're really, really freaking genetically blessed, there are freaks out there who that somehow happens for but they are yeah. one in a million um and they're never female sorry any female listeners Alberto Nunez. Um, yeah <clears throat> so they're you know they're the, the lucky people who we're not most of us so but in that instance I've, I've jumped back to there or you can jump back to your new predicted maintenance for your new lower body weight which again you um might your metabolism might be a bit slower that because of these adaptations but you're going to regain that by being in this small calorie surplus and and refeeding phase so for me that's the case of like go back to that figure use this factor that you're you're joyful for eating all of this really decent food i mean i am when i said you said oh you know have you calculated all of your own deficit etc i'm so much less anal about my training and nutrition than I used to be um so I'm probably not a great person for lots of people who are super keen to gain every ounce of muscle they can in their training career kind of scenario but um doing it this way is you know is going to get people most of the most of the benefits that they want and um yeah yeah yeah, and, and I, uh, it's funny what you just mentioned about uh, their porridge and whatever sugar-free chocolate syrup being the high point of their days. It <laughs> kind of reminded me of, um, I talked about this with Mike Isretel, that there is sort of this hedonic staircase. And, uh, you know, when you're, there are certain foods which kind of barely move the needle for you in terms of excitement, and there are foods mm-hmm. which move it a little bit, and then there are those that just drive you crazy. And kind of the blessing and the curse at the same time of being in a very dieted state is that basically any food is almost at that point where it just gets you excited. And one thing I guess to do is to actually take advantage of this and to not go crazy with the super tasty palatable foods right after the diet. Exactly. Really enjoy the fact that you can actually enjoy these really bland foods, you know, apple Mm. and bananas and whatever. Those things will taste like heaven for you right after the diet, Mm. right? Exactly, yeah. And you can just start building these brilliant habits of what I was kind of saying there a minute ago is, which I lost my way slightly was I'm really bad. If I don't pay attention to my diet, I will eat one to 1.2 grams per kilogram protein. I'm shocking. I don't, you know, uh-huh. I'm a bit of a carb fiend and I, I'm, I'm a lazy eater and I've not great, got a great appetite. So I, you know, chowing down on one and a half chicken breast is I'll happily do that when I'm dieting, but when I'm not, I'm just like, can't be bothered. Yeah. So in, for me, it's, it's even more so the case of, yeah, brilliant. I, I, you know, I, I get excited by having a big bowl of rice or these kind of things. So it's, it's using those habits, using that, this newfound motivation for good, high quality foods, not just cakes, donuts, crap like that. Like that's why I try and encourage people out of this kind of post diet binge mentality is have an end game, have a, the, the end game is not the end of the diet. It's okay, cool. What am I going to do in the four to eight weeks after that? Oh, cool. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to do a refeed. I'm gonna, that's why I really like the reverse dieting movement, not for the initial crap, quite frankly, that came out of it, but for the idea of 
you don't diet and then just basically undermine all of what you did by going mad and um and just binging and then feeling worse for it and actually having quite negative body image views and all of these kind of things and so yeah that all of this encompassed of make the most of like you said your the fact that your needle moves yeah. <laughs> with um these these decent high quality foods yeah yeah and uh, and like you said the reverse diet where you add in whatever like uh, five grams of carbs per week <laughs> that's obviously insane especially yeah. when you're just doing it back to maintenance but if there's yeah, one yeah. benefit of doing that is that it builds up uh, behaviors or rebuilds kind of uh, eating behaviors back to normal gradually, yeah. which definitely has a benefit. Um, and you just mentioned habits, and that's that's a big one uh, for me, and, and definitely one that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, when you worked with clients, or now in your um, in your business, when you're working with people, and and even in your uh, nutrition university, uh, which we're going to mention at the end, um, you know. Still, you know, I've been in this game for a long time, and uh, obviously all of us have our better and worse days. You know, sometimes, mm. even though I have all the years of conditioning, sometimes I'm sleep-deprived, I'm stressed. Uh, those are days when adherence could be harder, but I have certain kind of key habits that I rely on day-to-day. -day. For example, wake up and just drink two or three glasses of water. And it's nothing <coughs> magical, but in a sense, that mini habit almost reminds me of kind of the the person that I want to become from a nutrition and fitness kind of standpoint. Like, okay, I'm the person who drinks three glasses of water after waking or starting my meals with veggies. These sort of sorts of mini habits really quickly mm. put me back on track when things are not as optimal as they otherwise would be. Uh, do you have any sort of um, kind of key habits that you uh, pay attention to coach people towards or guide people towards, uh, especially jump up people who, for whom these small, simple habits go a really long way? Yeah, interesting one. We one of the things we teach. So within Mac Nutrition Uni, quite a funny thing. People have said, "Oh, Mac Nutrition Uni, it's like really advanced course, really evidence based, loads of science." But, but you know, X Y Z course is about the coaching, and it's so funny because we have such a massive element around behavior change and all of the stuff, the the counselling process, consultation skills. So. I'm going to use your podcast to tell people that's absolute rubbish, <laughs> that Magnetician Uni doesn't do that. But one of the things within the kind of the consultation process and different techniques that we teach is something that I call low-hanging fruit. Mm. So with a client, uh, and this is kind of a really broad answer to what you've just said there, is different clients end up having different elements in their life. And, and low-hanging fruit is small effort for maximum gain. So if, if, if you say to someone, look, in your situation, with your lifestyle, with your preferences, you seemingly consume so many calories at this time of day, for instance, or so many calories from liquid sources, can we find stuff that you enjoy equally that for the rest of your life is going to massively reduce your energy intake? And they might not even have realized that their whatever they were getting from Starbucks or whatever had 800, 1,000 calories. And they're like, oh, I just get that one. But I enjoy a whatever, Americano, cappuccino, just as much. And you go, brilliant. For the rest of your life, <laughs> choose that one because you enjoy it just as much. And if you want to have the other one, fine. But understand that it's got four times as more calories. So that's one example. So we would look at every individual in terms of, okay, what is their low-hanging fruit? And therefore, is there something that I'm not going to make them feel restricted for the rest of their life? So you, the scenario you gave is actually something called identity-based behavior change. Mm -hmm. I am someone who, not, oh, I'm trying to lose weight, so I eat veg. 
It's, I'm someone who wakes up and drinks a glass of water, not, oh, I'm doing this diet where you have to wake up and drink a glass of water with some lemon in it. It's, it's completely reframing that to an identity-based behavior change. And when you become that person, it's no longer an effort. You, you know, brushing your teeth is not necessarily an effort. It's a habit. It's an identity thing. I am someone who, when you get someone, oh, I'm going to the gym because I'm on a diet and I want to lose weight versus, oh, do you train? Yeah, I train. Not, do you train? Well, I'm going to the gym because I want to lose weight. And it's not like you can just necessarily instill that, but it's it's good to have that understanding of if you can make things easy enough to someone who goes, oh, I always get my friend's drink and he always has an Americano, you've become that person. I always get my friend's drink and he always has a chocolate with froth and whipped cream. You know, you are the person who... who who needs to find something equally as rewarding that you like as much that you can maintain for the rest of your life. So we do this low-hanging fruit, so it's hard to give a really specific answer. There's all the typical ones of, okay, it is potentially good if someone is particularly hungry in the morning, we would try and encourage them to have a breakfast that had some protein in it. Um, As a snack, if someone is... The other thing about like whey protein shakes, people are like, oh, you drink those... I don't know, steroid shakes. You know, people have this crazy view. They're they're perfectly happy to drink a bottle of soft drink, which is just, you know, highly refined sugar, calories, etc. But as soon as you say have some, have a protein shake, they're like, oh, I'm I'm not going to do that for the rest of my life. Why not? Because I'm someone who does. I would happily have it as a snack. I know it's satiating. It tastes really nice. They're like, oh, protein shakes taste gross. And it's like, you're either using the wrong brand or... I mean, I know, whatever, when I had my first protein shake 16 years ago, it was disgusting. Mm. It was lumpy. It was rubbish. It was, you know, it didn't mix. These days, in this day and age, I would choose some of the flavors of protein shakes that I use over, you know, milkshakes in fast food chains. You know, some of them are absolutely amazing. You know, protein bars these days, they're f- phenomenal. Food science has come on so far. So, I mean, I, I have had billionaires, some of the richest, most powerful people in the world as clients and i literally have i'm not going to give anyone a brand shout out here because no one is sending me free stuff but i have used particular brands and these billionaires literally are there on their private jet eating their protein bar instead of the crap that they you would usually be consuming i have changed their identity they love it they're like oh my goodness one of them actually was a food connoisseur and he would rate some of the top michelin star restaurants and he's he's there eating these flipping fitness industry bodybuilder 23 grams of protein, low carb protein bars, yeah. um, 199 calorie type things. So all of this stuff is, if you can change their identity to doing any of these little habits that we know help these. Okay. So another one I often do, and I've, I've obviously got my ebook on intermittent fasting is for some people. And this is the one I do when I'm not paying attention to calories, when I'm not doing anything, I stay in relatively good shape now all year round since I've got over my food issues from being an idiot bodybuilder <laughs> is, um, I don't eat when I'm not hungry and I don't eat for as long as I can in the morning. But the one thing I do do is when I'm hungry, I go to highly satiating. I don't do the thing that the reason that we observe in research that people who skip breakfast are more overweight is because when it comes to the time that they become hungry, they eat crap. They they make crap choices. Whereas if you can coach someone to, you know, they say to you, I- I'm not hungry when I wake up. You know, dietitians out there are like, you must eat breakfast. It's the most important meal of the day. It switches on your metabolism, blah, 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 blah. You say, okay, that's cool. Don't eat. Because in the research, people who skip breakfast seemingly in a controlled environment 
do not have an increase in hunger, do not eat more. So therefore, when you do eat, because you will get hungry at some point and you won't be at home where people tend to have better food choices available, be prepared. Have a protein bar, have a protein shake, have a meal in a Tupperware that you've got with you. And, you know, that is something that we've coached hundreds of people to do just to be prepared um, for and, and not eating any calories in the morning. And they're like, oh, yeah, I eat a really big lunch and I have a massive dinner and with my children and my family. And for the first time ever, I'm able to maintain my body weight. Why? Because I'm skipping breakfast in a conscientious way. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that was brilliant. And uh, <laughs> first of all, I love how you love how you phrase the, the question of what is your low-hanging fruit. And it just reminded me that I'm inclined to name this episode, what's your low-hanging fruit, but I'm afraid that nobody would click on this. So it will have, <laughs> it will have a different name. Um, yeah. The other thing it reminded me of is when people um, demonize uh, artificial sweeteners. Like any any friend mm. that we have who never who has no idea about nutrition will readily tell us that aspartame is dangerous, but they have no problem mm. consuming you know table sugar about the, by the mouthful. It's almost like this reasoning of well. I don't eat artificial sweeteners because they are dangerous, so I'll just eat sugar mm. because at least I know that's yeah. bad. So it's mm. yeah, it's, it's that that one's. Or they smoke. Oh, Even yeah. worse, they're like, "Oh, you're not having a diet soft drink, are you?" Whilst they're there smoking a cigarette, it's like, "What?" That's actually um, pretty common. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. crazy. And um, you know, it's it's how you mentioned that uh, people who typically fail, for example, at, at fasting, are those who uh, who will eat crap afterwards. And it it just reminded me how certain strategies might be more applicable for some people than others. So, for example, this whole rapid fat loss thing that we talked about. Probably mm. you would agree with the fact that you know people who have a prior uh, disordered eating issues or mm. have these binge mm. purge cycle type of uh, problems, yeah. for them it would probably not be appropriate. And it just yeah. re- uh, reminded me that um, just interacted with a guy yesterday who mentioned that he tuned into one of your Q and A webinar things, and um, mm-hmm. he asked you about uh, what to do if someone is struggling to maintain their their body composition because they go on binges too frequently and, and things of that nature. And that your advice was uh, to seek help, seek counseling. And um, I would be just interested that as you, who is an educator, has various platforms of, uh, you know, helping people and creating resources for people, what is the point at which you're deferring people to someone else when you say, okay, you clearly need help from a qualified professional? Uh, How do you draw this line in your own uh, practice? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And it's, I think it's one of the reasons why Mac Nutrition Uni has become worldwide respected because we have such a big element of dealing with scope of practice of coaches, trainers, these kind of things. And, you know, we set out to help nutritionists and personal trainers and we now have GPs, you know, general practitioners, MDs, emergency doctors, dietitians, physiologists, pharmacists signing up to MNU because of all of different factors and people now putting on job specs for jobs. You know, we, we've MNU only launched less than two years ago and it's taken the world by storm. Why? Because, A, yes, because it's evidence-based, but it's gained acceptance in typically places who which would be very hard to break into because we we care about this really important area of first doing no harm, which is obviously this kind of medical practitioner kind of golden rule first do no harm and i think a bit with the fitness industry you get someone who one minute has never trained never dieted never had any qualifications they do a show 
they employ a coach to help them do a show. They maybe place top three. And then the next minute, they've got an Instagram profile. They're giving out nutrition plans. Yeah. Um, and, you know, giving people the same diet that they were on and, that, that, you know, whatever. But they're giving people, they've got no idea of a scope of practice. They've got no idea of triggers that... You know, like you've just said there, they have no idea that maybe if someone comes and says, you know, I've been binging and purging, they're like, oh, yeah, well, just do my diet and it will help you lose fat. They've got no idea. So within m we've got this big element of scope of practice. We've, you know, one of our tutors on m actually is an advisor for the NICE guidelines, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence guidelines on eating disorders. And um, we, we're not teaching people necessarily to become eating disorder counselors but we are teaching people to spot stuff we are you know there's this phrase we use about teaching people to be appropriately curious Mm. about things that clients report like i know myself i i totally hold my hands up that i was not aware of this after you know a degree and two postgraduates from academic some of the best academic universities in the country i was not aware of these things i was not aware of an athlete saying oh yeah, I'm on a diet, I'm doing really well, I'm getting shredded, and me going, okay, we're going to go back to maintenance calories. And that client just binging for a week, that athlete binging for a week, and going, yeah, you know, it just, I didn't have any specific focus, I wasn't I wasn't hungry, so then I just went a bit over the top, and I was like, you know, I'm there going, haha, oh, that's annoying, okay, well, let's diet again, we're going to have to diet a bit harder. I didn't actually realise that that's, a, that's an issue. That is a restrict binge cycle. They are not able to do the moderate they are not able to do anything but restrict they have no control unless they are being overly controlling i.e restricted with themselves so you know there's this there's this big factor of learning about cues learning about the um telltale signs of the different eating eating disorders anorexia bulimia um binge eating disorder so you know we teach those on it on mnu not to help people cure people and that's a massive thing we teach people to a first do no harm don't use protocols that are highly likely to lead to disordered eating and b if you spot these things we need to start thinking about referring to either you know either a dietitian who specializes in eating disorders not just any dietitian because any dietitian isn't good enough or to someone who has the appropriate qualifications in psychological support, counselling, you know, even psychiatry, which is obviously a you know a qualified medical doctor, then with a psychological mm. um, training, and it's you know it's this big factor. And actually, you know, when my eyes got open to this, you start to realise that the world of the health and fi- health and fitness industry is um, unfortunately plagued by disordered eating and. You know, I, I will hold my hands up and said I added to that with with previous people I worked with because I I didn't know I wasn't appropriately trained and you know now, now I'm writing my wrongs with MNU and trying to help the industry be better. Yeah. Um. But yeah, th- these are really important things and it's like it, they're not the sexy things to talk about. Um. So it is kind of cool that you've brought it up that you know to to be spoken about and it, it is just something that people need to be aware of and we need to we need to be more aware and more sensitive to the fact that especially the physique you know like you said you use the word insane it's like it's driving me insane and we all you know at the end of a diet when I was competing I competed for five years I think in seven or eight shows and um it sends you crazy it sends you to a place of 
a really, really weird relationship with food. And even the most psychologically strong of individuals, it set it it sends to a, a place that's unnatural for them. But for people who are, you know, like you you said, someone who's got a poor relationship with food, you probably wouldn't put them on a rapid fat loss. It's like, yeah, those people are the one who are really, really at risk of this. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I just find it really fascinating how uh, because in fitness and, and especially body composition oriented uh, mm. fitness questions, one of the most fundamental way in which we are tweaking and, and modifying things is by tweaking food behavior and food mm. as being this really profound biological driver. We are just fiddling mm. with the knobs and then we just develop these disordered patterns. And it's not a surprise. I mean, I always say that if somehow you know, by manipulating how much oxygen we take in with breathing, if we started manipulating that, then people would develop all, all kinds of psychological disorders with breathing. But luckily, that doesn't happen because there is no need for that. But I think it's, um, I guess it's relieving for people to hear that even someone like you, you know, say that, you know, you had your fair share of issues in this regard. So I think it will be good for yeah. people to hear. Yeah. 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 So um, since you mentioned malnutrition a couple of times, um, Maybe just let uh, people, for those of you who have been living under a rock, uh, just up to speed, you know, what, what the hell is malnutrition and what yeah. can they expect if they sign up for uh, that service and education platform? <clears throat> yeah, so Malnutrition Uni is, is our 12-month um, online evidence-based nutrition course. Leads to people to be able to practice as an MNU certified nutritionist. And it, it's funny, the story behind it, we we were solely going to be focusing on the UK initially. And when we launched just under two years ago, our first ever intake, we had people from 25 different countries. And it's just, I mean, it's madness how it how it's gone. Um, yeah. So we are still almost two years on playing catch up with regards to getting people insured. So we, we focused initially on the UK of getting people insurance to practice as an MNU certified nutritionist. And, um, you know, then we were like, oh, crap we've had all these people sign up from america so we went and sorted out insurance to practice in america and you know there's this whole thing of there's certain states in america where um there's really kind of weird stringent laws there's about four states that we have to be we have to tell people from there about the difference in rules and then we got canada sorted and then we've just you know continued in ireland actually i should have mentioned that one being so close to home mm. and um you know we a big one we're trying to do is australia you know i'm saying up front now we don't have australia yet but we have loads of people from australia on the course because they know that it's going to benefit their business working with clients they're just not yet insured to practice an mnu certified nutritionist but we've got doctors from australia on the course and yeah you can study from anywhere in the world you can do it alongside a full-time job it's an it's in my my mind and i don't really feel bad saying this the best course in the world i don't see a course that even touches it and you know that might sound incredibly arrogant but i never set out to create the world's best course <clears throat> it's just kind of happened the, the you know the the way we've done it the amount of effort we've put into it the kind of the care and attention for everything from every single lecture you know people watch a 90 minute lecture and a hundred hours of work went into that lecture. Mm. And there's, you know, with all of the reading of the research behind it, the stripping out of stuff you don't need to know. You know, I've done years and years and years and years, seven, eight years of academic study. I learned so much crap I never needed to know. <clears throat> so much biochemistry, so much information that never helped me help someone change their life. So we stripped everything out and that took a lot of time to go, is that of any use? Do we need to include it? <clears throat> and then... 
yeah, put it together. And then next step, what's the further reading? How can we support the differentiated learning? If someone is a career changer, you know, we've got lawyers, bankers, beauticians, journalists who want to change career. They love nutrition. They found a passion for it. They want to change career. So we're having to take them from zero but at the same time, we've got these MDs, dietitians, MSc nutritionists, and we want them to enjoy the course. We want them to find out more. But I think a key part of that is how practically focused it is. You know, you've got, you know, for instance, someone like me teaching you from 10 years of experience of working with clients. I'm talking to you about whatever, biochemistry or research methods even, or, you know, we, we, our new intake in March, they've just done their research methods um, lecture and people are like oh my goodness this was amazing I love this lecture and I'm there thinking flipping it that's so boring <laughs> um, it's research methods but they're like no because of this and the the how you've contextualized it and I've realized that this is going to help my learning long term so all of that stuff down to the homeworks like the homeworks are designed to either make you a better practitioner or make you a more viable business so if people are going self-employed what you know one of the homeworks which which are optional actually so that's something worth saying mm-hmm. for people to be an adult and go have i already got this is this going to help me be better or is this something that i can use to give to clients or work with clients myself or even put on my social media you know some of them are literally create this and put it on your social media we as part of the homework we will proofread it or do whatever and you put it on your social media and get clients because you have helped people for free, but you've done it to partial qualification. So we've literally thought about everything to every single module. There's a key or core skill at the end of the module, which we think if you do these six core skills, I'm not going to give them away. They will make you a phenomenal practitioner. Right. Um, so yeah, everything. I mean, that's what it is. It's um, our next intake is September this year. We do two intakes a year, March and September. People always message me, oh, I really want to get on it. Can I not just start now? And it does make me feel really bad, but I've made the commitment that it is you start the course with your classmates, with your cohort, and you go start to finish. There is a deadline. There is an exam period, a four-week exam period. And um, so that people just don't you know, sign up for the course, let it just sit, never complete it. It's a, you know, we, it's almost like that thing of you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You know, we lead people to the water, but we also make it really, really attractive to drink, yeah. um, to get the most out of it. And I think that's why if you go on the internet, you look at the hashtag Mac Nutrition Uni, you speak to people who are on the course or have graduated and you see the things that honestly daily, I'm humbled by the comments that people are making. It's, you know, I, I feel like the luckiest person in the world. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And uh, just just the, how you laid out everything that's going on there. I have, uh, it's not surprising at all why you would say that this is the best course in the world mm. at the moment. So props to you. And, and it's really amazing what it has okay. grown out to be. And I, I can only imagine what is going to evolve into in the next couple of years. Mm. So really amazing. Um, besides this, is there any other uh, resource or availability that you would like people to point towards? Yeah, I, I suppose I've just, for the first time ever in my life, I've decided to start i'm not a great content creator as funny as that sounds i if people are always messaging me saying oh i got this question i googled martin mcdonald and whatever and they're like i couldn't find anything Mm -hmm. and it's because i've been so busy doing stuff i suppose creating a menu for instance is a big one and being on podcasts but i'm not i did start my career career writing articles and this that and the other but I, I haven't really archived it. Like if you go on various forums around the internet, 
I've probably written 50,000 posts or, or even more. But nothing is in one place. So the thing I would say to people is I'm, I've committed this year to start creating content. And a lot of that will go out on my what I've called my Mac Mail newsletter. So, I mean, I'll, I'll send you the link, Abel, so you can put it somewhere to signpost people. But um, I think as well, my Instagram, I'm there daily kind of doing polls and education for people. And I'll, I'll link to my newsletter from there. But I would say to people, yeah, sign up to the newsletter go on the mac nutrition uni website mac-nutritionuni.com stick your email address in and we send out the occasional free lecture like actual mnu content lecture you know when i speak at conferences or expos i'll occasionally film them and give those away for free so it's you know we're not going to brainwash anyone into signing up for a course they don't want to if you want to get free education like this podcast you know following me in those places is probably a good idea Great. Uh, and we will make sure to link to all of those sources that you just mentioned. And with that, uh, Martin, thank you so much for taking the time today. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave a comment and subscribe if you watch this on YouTube. If you listen to this on iTunes, please leave a rating to help this stuff grow. SoundCloud and Podbeam, you can just follow me to be notified on future episodes. And to be a contributing member of this podcast, join the Sustainable Self-Development Facebook group where you can drop ideas about future podcasts. I very often ask my listeners for tips and advice on who to get on next. So if you're interested in getting into discussions like that, be sure to join the Facebook group. And if you don't want to go through the searching process, just click one of those links in the show notes slash video description. It is all there. All right. Thanks for hanging around up until now and see you next time.